You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Can treating hypertension prevent diabetes? Welcome to the Clinician Roundtable. I am your host, Dr. Matthew Sorrentino, from the section of cardiology at the University of Chicago Hospitals, and with me today is Dr. William J. Elliott. Dr. Elliott is the professor of preventive medicine at the Department of Preventive Medicine at Rush University Medical Center. Dr. Elliott was recently a first author of a paper in The Lancet entitled Incident Diabetes in Clinical Trials of Antihypertensive Drugs, a Network Meta-Analysis. And we're going to talk to Dr. Elliott today about the treatment of hypertension and how it may have an impact on future diabetes. Dr. Elliott, welcome to the program. Thank you, sir. I thought I would start by just going over the current guidelines. The Joint National Committee for the Prevention, Detection, and Evaluation and Treatment of High Blood Pressure says that we should use diuretics in uncomplicated hypertension. Can you give us just an overview of what the guidelines are for uncomplicated hypertension and why were diuretics chosen? The short answer is that diuretics are quite inexpensive to purchase. Diuretics have a huge and long track record of success, not only in lowering blood pressure, but in fact in preventing cardiovascular events and particularly heart failure, which as you probably remember is the number one diagnosis for Medicare beneficiaries being admitted to hospital in the United States today. And there is no class of drug that has surpassed the excellent record of diuretics in preventing heart failure. And that is true for any kind of meta-analysis you want to do. It's true for the largest and most important blood pressure trial ever done in the United States, which was All Hat, and in fact is something about which little argument can really occur. Now, what about some of the metabolic concerns about diuretics? Should they be a concern in our patients with the hypertension? Well, I think everybody would say that these days we have to be concerned about everything in medicine. So they are a concern, but should they dissuade us from using the time-tested and, uh, how do we say, best option for treating hypertension for most patients with uncomplicated hypertension, that's a debatable point. And some people on the one side of the debate, like the all-hat investigators, for example, remind us that when they do their long-term surveillance of people in all-hat who were given the diuretic, yes, they do show up with more diabetes in the long term. But in fact, there is no increase in risk of cardiovascular events amongst those individuals for the duration of follow-up of that study, which you remember was only 4.9 years on the average anyway. And you would say that most of us prefer to treat our patients longer than 4.9 years and to get good information about people who turn diabetic during the treatment of hypertension and to see how their risk of cardiovascular events is affected has been a difficult thing to do. There's a fairly large body of literature now that's growing on this, and so far, there have been, how shall we say, a couple of pieces of information that suggest that there could be a problem, but most of the data suggests that lowering blood pressure is the most important thing, and whether or not a couple more people become diabetic or not is maybe not as important. Is there a group of patients that may be at more risk? I'm thinking of the patient with impaired fasting glucose or metabolic syndrome. He's not diabetic yet. He has hypertension. We give him a diuretic. Can we make him a diabetic by giving him that diuretic for his blood pressure? Indeed, we can. And we have other options that might decrease that risk. But you're exactly right to say, as in most dichotomous outcomes, those who have a baseline measurement, if you will, that's closer to the threshold are more likely to develop the problem. This is true whether you're talking about people with prehypertension as compared to normal blood pressure. That is to say, uh, 120 to 139 uh, over 80 to 89 as compared to less than 120 over 80. It's pretty clear that 
those with prehypertension are more likely to develop hypertension just because they're closer to the finish line, if you will, of 140 over 90. The same is true for people with diabetes. If you start with a fasting sugar of 123, you only have to go three milligrams per deciliter higher twice, and suddenly you're diabetic as compared to a person who starts at 80. The same could be said for, how do we say, treatment of uh, cholesterol problems, for example, et cetera. So whenever there's this arbitrary threshold beyond which one has to uh, have one or two values to have a diagnosis, it's, of course, more likely that you're going to end up with that diagnosis the closer you are to the threshold. The second thing is that there are lots of demographic factors and, in fact, some familial factors that are important for this. Some years ago, we looked at the risk factors for developing new diabetes during the treatment of hypertension, and to nobody's surprise, the number one was exactly as you said, those who have higher fasting sugars to begin with. The second one was obese people. The third one was people with metabolic syndrome. The fourth one was treatment with diuretic or a beta blocker. That was considered dichotomous, either one. And then the last one was people with a family history of diabetes and a first-degree relative, father, mother, brother, sister, offspring. So the fact is that we can get a pretty good estimate of who is likely to develop diabetes just based on the usual things that we look at the first time we see a patient with hypertension. Now, the meta-analysis that you recently published looked at a number of different classes of antihypertensives and the incident of diabetes. But before we go into the results of the study, can you describe to us what a traditional meta-analysis does and then how your meta-analysis, a network meta-analysis, is different? Maybe I can do that with respect to a subgroup of the studies that we, in fact, included in our network meta-analysis. And that would be the question of which is more likely to be associated with future diabetes in a clinical trial, a calcium channel blocker or any other drug. And it turns out that the reason that this is not a very useful method of doing this kind of a comparison is because you're comparing calcium channel blockers versus anything else that's been studied in opposition to a calcium channel blocker in all the clinical trials that exist. So, for example, we have a number of clinical trials where the calcium channel blocker was compared to a diuretic or a beta blocker. In both of those circumstances, it turns out that there is a trend, if not a significant difference, favoring the calcium channel blocker being less likely to show up with a greater chance of new diabetes than the individuals with a diuretic and a beta blocker. So the beta blocker and the diuretic would be more likely to end up with diabetes than the calcium channel blocker. And then, of course, you can look at other studies where they have compared the calcium channel blocker compared to an ACE inhibitor, for example, in which case the calcium channel blocker doesn't look as good as the ACE inhibitor. And now we have two studies, in fact, one published and one so far just presented, where the calcium channel blocker has been compared with ARB, angiotensin receptor blocker. And in both of those cases, the angiotensin blocker was superior in preventing new onset diabetes than was a calcium channel blocker. So in a traditional meta-analysis, you simply line up, if you will, all of the numbers of new diabetics in the trial compared to the number of people given that particular medicine. And you compare those rate ratios for calcium channel blocker in one column and then other in the second column. And if you do that, it turns out that because of the inhomogeneity that I just talked about, in other words, beta blockers and diuretics showing calcium channel blockers to be better in preventing diabetes, but ACE inhibitors and ARBs in turn better than a calcium channel blocker, it turns out that the p-value for homogeneity in such a meta-analysis is less than 10 to the minus 13th, meaning that we're comparing here apples, oranges, and tomatoes rather than different kinds of apples, and therefore the result that we get is not particularly, how shall we say, interesting and probably shouldn't really be believed very much because the traditional meta-analysis is inhomogeneous across all the studies. 
So how does your analysis then differ from the traditional analysis? And then we can go into what you found in the study. Okay. The nice thing, if I can say that, being slightly biased, about network meta-analysis is that it allows not only direct comparisons of the type that I was just speaking of, where you compare calcium channel blockers versus other, but in fact, you can also incorporate indirect comparisons. Now, indirect comparison in statistical terms is a complicated process that's much easier to explain in the context of sports. And in Chicago, as you may remember, we had uh, one team, the Bears, playing in Super Bowl XLI against the Indianapolis Colts this year. And during the 2006 season, the Colts and the Bears had not played each other. So if you were an odds maker or a betting person, you would try to discern which is the team worthy of your betting money based on not a direct comparison, because they hadn't played all year, but instead an indirect comparison. And I am told that the odds makers pay great attention to this in Las Vegas and Atlantic City and other places where they were, where they look at the teams that are the subset of those in the NFL that both the Bears and the Colts played in the 2006 season. And it turns out that the Bears went 3-2 and two against the teams that the Colts also played, where the Colts went 5-0. and zero. And I'm not sure, but I suspect that that's part of the reason that the Colts were, in fact, given a seven-point advantage when it came to the point spread, I believe they call it, when the betters were betting then on the Super Bowl that happened in sort of rained-out fashion. But Nonetheless, that's why the oddsmakers, I believe, ranked the Colts higher than the Bears, not because of direct comparison, but instead because of indirect comparison. So you're doing the same then with these different antihypertensive studies. You're using studies that didn't necessarily compare one agent to the other, but by indirectly looking at these studies, you can come up with some sort of odds as to the development of diabetes. Exactly so. And this is particularly important for the comparison of ACE inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers. These are two classes of drugs that in meta-analyses against other drugs, in fact, both have just about the same propensity to prevent diabetes. But sadly, like the bears and the colts, they had not been compared head-to-head. We won't get those data until the on-target transcend data, probably next year, maybe the year after. But the point is that we don't have data about ACE inhibitors compared to ARBs, but we do have, for example, ACE inhibitors compared to placebo, and we also have angiotensin receptor blockers compared to placebo. So we can do an indirect comparison, if you will, with ACE inhibitors compared to angiotensin receptor blockers, not directly, but ACE inhibitors compared to placebo, and then angiotensin receptor blockers compared to placebo, and thereby get an indirect comparison. And as if that wasn't complex enough, we can also do the same thing with thiazide diuretics, with beta blockers, with calcium channel blockers, each of which, in fact, have been compared to ACE inhibitors and receptor blockers. And the network meta-analysis allows you to incorporate all of those indirect comparisons, not just the one against placebo but in all of those circumstances. And that's how the indirect comparisons are worked into the network meta-analysis. So how did the results come out? What drug classes seem to be better at preventing diabetes in the future? Well, as it happened, uh, much as I said before, ARBs and ACE inhibitors came out uh, first and second, but there was not a statistically significant difference between those two. They were statistically better than placebo. Calcium channel blockers came next. And then, amazingly, compared to placebo, which some people would say should be the standard, particularly in England, they like that. But the point is, beta blockers and diuretics came next. And so the order then would be ARB slightly better than ACE inhibitors, placebo then down a fair bit, and calcium channel blockers not much different than placebo, but a little bit worse. And then beta blockers would come next, and diuretics would be the last. Now, the reason in our analyses that we used diuretic as the referent is because, as we mentioned earlier in this interview, The fact is that diuretics, at least in the United States, are considered the standard 
class of drugs for hypertension that should be used in the vast majority of patients because of their unsurpassed record in preventing heart failure as well as their lower cost. So we in the United States tend to think of the diuretic as the standard, whereas in other countries, particularly Britain, they wanted us to use instead the placebo as the standard and then each class of drug as compared to placebo. But really, in the treatment of hypertension in the United States anyway, placebo doesn't have a role any longer unless you're talking about you know, very short-term studies, efficacy trials for lowering blood pressure in new drugs, and things like that. We don't use placebo in the long term. I want to thank Dr. William Elliott, who has been our guest, and we have been discussing his recent meta-analysis entitled Incident Diabetes and Clinical Trials of Antihypertensive Drugs. I am Dr. Matthew Sorrentino, and you have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. And thank you for listening.